This is Global Humanist Shop Talk, the podcast edition. I'm M.L. Clark. I was still a young preteen when I first read my mother's copy of B.F. Skinner's Walden II, a philosophical dialogue published in 1948 that imagines a socialist enclave were working a few hours on urgent community tasks like waste management and construction would allow a person to fulfill all their daily obligations to the collective and still leave plenty of other time for personal and creative pursuits. My young mind reeled at how this and other proposals in the book seemed to fix a host of problems I saw in the real world. Gone, in Skinner's version of Utopia, was the cult of political celebrity in favor of a rotating council that did its work collaboratively and quietly. And gone, too, were all those stark childhood disparities formed by socioeconomic and parental circumstance. In Skinner's version of society, all children were born when the parents were young, then raised together by the community as a whole, with as much equality in outcome as nature then allowed. Why didn't all societies try to do something similar, I wondered as a kid. Why did my culture instead prize the absolute sovereignty of the family unit when it so plainly led to unequal and unjust outcomes? The question only further baffled me as a teen and young adult when I saw that Canada and the United States both did and didn't put family first. The U.S. in particular continues to be the only high-income country without paid maternity leave, and both the U.S. and English-speaking Canada have done precious little to cultivate economies that either match daycare and preschool costs or else allow more young families to sustain themselves on a single parent's income. And still, my generation was being criticized for not having more babies. As the eldest of four who played a significant role in raising my siblings through a difficult childhood, and who then helped extensively with my nephews when they were little, I knew early on that I was not going to have children of my own but also that I was always going to be someone who cared about how children and their parents were treated by society. Parents, after all, are generally trying their best in complexly broken systems, but they're also usually too busy just trying to get by day by day to enact far-reaching changes. This isn't to say that parents aren't also aware of the problems or working to fix them. It's just that those of us without kids often have more time, energy, and resources, and as such, maybe more responsibility to advocate for a better world. This is the sort of mental flip, at least. One of those critical moments when we better understand how agency can be enhanced or lessened by our policies and cultures that this humanist podcast always sets out to explore, one everyday object or concept at a time. You're listening to Global Humanist Shop Talk, and today, as a village, we're going to raise up some of the dissonant histories, curious semiotics, and humanist concerns around childhood. 
A little before reading Walden II, at around 10 years old, I had started to realize that my father's conservative politics were not my own, and how the Canadian conservative movement treated children and adolescents played a huge role in this mental flip. The Progressive Conservative Party was no fan, for instance, of state-funded childcare or of giving families sufficient childcare subsidies to afford equivalent costs. And yet, its policy platforms also advocated for the extreme punishment of troubled youth, hard time, retributive justice, and no handouts, aka educational opportunities, when teens and young adults manifested serious behavioral problems or even broke the law and were removed from their homes to spend time in state institutions. How could a just social politics, one fully informed by human behavioral sciences, have it both ways? If the goal was to develop a society in which individual rights were tantamount, as many conservatives claimed to be their aim, why then were they advancing laws that essentially punished children for the household they had been born into and the parents they did not choose? When did a child of an abusive, neglectful, or otherwise problematic home laden with a whole body of learned behaviors, traumatic experiences, and general misinformation ever get the tools in this conservative view of a just society to enter as equal citizens into the grander playing field of public life? Though many of us were raised secular, We've all still been raised in a world shaped by some highly Abrahamic ideas about the family, ideas prioritizing patrilineal authority, idolizing a flawed image of mothers as universally motherly, extolling obedience to anyone who is bigger, stronger, and older, and protecting bloodline above all else. All of which means that by the time those of us with difficult beginnings finally reach the age of emancipation, to say nothing of the far later age of maturity, a great deal of behavioral damage might already have been done. Empirical research is overwhelming on this accord. We know that the quality of our early childhood education in reading, in lateral thinking, in verbal interaction and stimulating play, and above all else, in emotional stability, has a huge impact on the rest of our lives. Similarly, the quality of nutrition during our earliest years has powerful and long-lasting effects, for better and for worse. Iron deficiencies among infants can affect cognition and socio-emotional function well into adolescence. Exposure to routinely high-stress scenarios like a violent or food-insecure home grievously affects the development of the brain and especially executive function. Behavioral issues in men in particular are often treated as a given, as just part of the naturally greater emotional volatility of people with high levels of testosterone. But we have ample research showing how the range and intensity of male behavioral issues are routinely shaped by childhood environmental factors. And so, until we come up with a cure for difficult childhoods that magically rewrites neuronal pathways at age 16, 
We have to recognize the absurdity of telling people they simply need to snap out of whatever trauma, whatever establishing principles and relationships shaped their lives before they could make choices for themselves. Actually, no, that was misleading of me. We do have a magical cure already for at least one part of the problem. We already know of one variable that can mitigate a wide range of childhood issues with all their attendant consequences for development, aptitude, and opportunity. It's just that this cure is abhorrent to a vein of moral conservative who sees it as quote-unquote rewarding the parents for failure to make better choices. This kind of conservative, the same type who would rather that people stay in costly prison systems even if there are lower-cost solutions that clearly improve economic reintegration and social stability for all, therefore wants this one obvious solution all but eliminated from public policy around childhood well-being. The cure, of course, is money. Or, to be more precise, the cure in many cases is the increased household stability and opportunities for healthier parental interaction that even a modest increase in reliable cash flow or equivalent investment, especially in the children themselves, can provide for families living with precarity. It's not a handout. It's an investment in prevention, which significantly reduces costs to society down the line. But the sheer emotionalism that a term like handout creates among moral conservative thinkers makes it difficult to have a measured conversation about the cost-benefit analysis of giving every child a better start. The breakthrough research first illustrating the value of early investment was what's called a natural experiment, meaning that the discovery of a statistically significant impact between increased household cash flow and decreased behavioral problems in children happened incidentally during the original eight-year run of a study of 1,420 children in the Great Smoky Mountains region of Western North Carolina. During that time, a casino opened on a reservation, and every man, woman, and child in that tribe received a portion of its profits. This income supplement was enough to raise many families in the study above the poverty line. And the rates of behavioral problems in that financially stabilized demographic? Well, they fell to rates similar to those in families that had never been poor, and that reduction stuck over time. To be clear, of course, socioeconomic status is by no means a quick fix for every possible psychological issue. Costello, Compton, Keeler et al.'s original 2003 paper on the Great Smoky Mountain study titled Relationships Between Poverty and Psychopathology inspired a wealth of subsequent research exploring related directions, and many papers have since disagreed over whether there is a significant link between socioeconomic status and levels of, say, clinical psychopathy among adolescents. Although one should pay very close attention to the overall society in which these studies have been carried out, because initial socioeconomic disparities among, say, the Dutch are quite different from those among North Americans. 
One of the biggest issues that consistently shows up across this research though is the role of household instability in general. Examples include a 2010 article in the American Economic Journal, Parents' Incomes and Children's Outcomes, which also draws from the ongoing Great Smoky Mountain study, but also makes a stronger link between the role of increased financial stability and consequent parental quality. Then there's a 2013 research synthesis by the Urban Institute, Heather Sandstrom and Sandra Huertas, The Negative Effects of Instability on Child Development, which differentiates between two forms of economic stability, among other critical factors. Viewing this data in aggregate, then, the fairest conclusion to draw might be that, inasmuch as financial solutions help to address household instability, they can play a huge role in giving children a better chance of entering adulthood with the socio-emotional and cognitive function needed to make better choices. Which is, you would think, what any political movement supposedly advocating for greater independence and personal responsibility would be first in line to support. Before 2007, I had seen many examples of moral conservatism in action. So many lives wasted, for example, to carceral systems that have no interest in anything but lock them up and throw away the key. But one example that year managed to stun me like nothing I had ever seen before. On October 3rd, 2007, then U.S. President George W. Bush vetoed a reauthorization of the Children's Health Insurance Program, or CHIP, which had been designed to provide health coverage to uninsured children whose parents did not quite qualify for Medicaid. Studies on the financial efficacy of CHIP were clear. Like most early intervention programs, CHIP saved tax dollars by reducing the cost of emergency care the only alternative for uninsured children. However, it also reduced enrollment rates in private insurance, which some parents had been maintaining at extreme cost to their overall household budgets. So you can guess where the lobby pressures emerged from when this reauthorization bill came up. The private markets won, both over reduced costs to the taxpayer and over increases to overall societal health, when Bush made it perfectly clear that he would not authorize any extension of CHIP to cover more children. The major Republican talking point at the time was that, according to the program's formula, it was possible that some children from a slightly higher income bracket might slip into the registry. And so, to prevent that possible heinous infiltration of a few more children from slightly higher household income brackets, the rest in need of government assistance to offset household precarity simply had to go without coverage at all. Here was a program that plainly bypassed giving money directly to the parents, the people that many conservative thinkers would say absolutely should not be rewarded for supposedly poor life choices and instead offered direct investment in the children of their households, the people who had not yet been able to make any decisions for themselves. 
If the core mantra of this political movement really was the idea of individual autonomy, why was it treating children as mere extensions of their parents, as humans every bit as culpable as their parents for whatever circumstances had left the latter less well off? In other episodes, we'll talk more about the retributive anger, the rigid sense of in-group and out, and other facets of pure emotionalism that underpin moral conservative thought. I'd be remiss today, though, if I didn't also highlight that there are self-identified conservatives interested in following the research that shows the lower cost to taxpayers of supporting more humanistic policies. Yes. Plenty of supposedly fiscal conservatives are deeply driven by moral outrage against individual transgression, happier to see someone punished than society healed. But then you get scholars like Arthur Reiser and Lars Troutman, who in 2018 published The Conservative Case for Criminal Justice Reform in The Guardian, an article arguing for an end to tough-on-time rhetoric in conservative circles and also celebrating the recent socioeconomic benefits of, say, the state of Texas making massive changes to this end in its prison system. But for now, the key takeaway, that critical mental flip I want to leave you with, is the idea that any conversation about how to optimize human agency has to take into account the inevitable inequalities, injustices, and precarities of childhood. We don't all need to run off and join communes like B.F. Skinner's. But we do need to remember that any political appeal for greater personal autonomy that fails to acknowledge the behavioral research illustrating the long-term physical, mental, and socio-emotional outcomes of difficult childhoods has more to do with maintaining existent power than extending true agency to our fellow human beings. This has been Global Humanist Chop Talk Podcast Edition with M.L. Clark. New episodes launch every other Friday, first to Global Humanist Chop Talk, the column available at OnlySky, and then to other podcast distributors. Maurizio Ferraz is my one-man dream team of an audio production specialist, Studio space and resources were provided by Agencia El Grifo. Theme music comes care of Kabbalistic Village on SoundCloud. And other background music is courtesy of Joseph McDade. All of this would not have been possible without my patrons, the vast majority of whom support me through Patreon, where I post a monthly newsletter, along with other updates on the full range of my writing projects. None of us excels without the support of a community, and I am deeply thankful to have found mine. Shop talkers, humanists, fellow travelers on this pale blue dot, wherever this episode's little mental flip finds you in your lives, please remember to be kind to yourselves, to seek justice where you can, and above all else, to keep the conversation thriving. Thriving.